welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm super excited to welcome back my guest today, Shay Sears Bearfield. Shay is a powerful speaker, entrepreneur, and talk show host of the popular The Shay Show. She has a passion for fostering meaningful conversations that bring people together by creating a safe space to share stories and inspire hearts to love better and hope more. I recently had the opportunity to be a guest on her show, so I know from experience Shay is an incredibly gifted interviewer, and the energy she brings to every conversation is palpable. But this time, the tables are turned and Shay is the interviewee. In our conversation, Shay brings her full self to the table and doesn't hold back. But as Shay shares, much of her life has been spent feeling like she was never enough and having to prove she was. Shay lived her early childhood years in the Bahamas and moved to the United States for elementary and boarding school. It was in the United States when Shay first became aware of her blackness and struggled to escape the feelings of being fat, ugly, and undesirable as her brown skin was always surrounded by whiteness. It was in the United States when Shay first became aware of her blackness and she struggled to escape feeling like she was fat, ugly, and undesirable as her brown skin was always surrounded by whiteness. She also shares about her first experience in the black church, contrasted with her experience immersed in white American Christianity, where once again she battled feeling like she was never enough. It's through these experiences that Shay has arrived where she is today, as a black woman who fully owns who she is and encourages others to do the same. As Shay says, my life has been spent trying to renegotiate and relearn the essence of my brilliance, beauty, and ability that was really broken when I was seven years old. Before you listen into our conversation, I do want to give you a warning that this is a very raw and vulnerable conversation where words are said that may be offensive to some. These words are powerful parts of Shay's storytelling, so I felt necessary to keep them in the conversation. Shay, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, and I mean that. And, and I thank you, because I was thinking this morning, this is the third time this week that this woman has talked to me and given me her time. So, wow, we went from never talking to this is the third one. So thank you. Uh, girl, you, I'm so glad you said yes to me. Yes, that helped me get past out of, like, now I'm, like, confident I could do that again. So that was a helpful step for me. But I know we had talked about having you coming on my show at some point, just didn't know when. And then me, you and Marcy recorded this week about the book club. And I thought, you know, people are going to want to know more about like, who is, who is Shay if I'm going to do this book club? So, and I'm curious to know more about you too, because a lot of time I guess, like you have books that I've read and I know their story and I'm like, I don't know her story. And I want to know, I've heard bits of Uh, it and they have made me want to know a lot more. So I'm just curious who you are and how you got to be Shay. And honestly, you seem to be one of the most confident women I've listened to and seen. And I just want to know how you got there and don't give me that look because you seem like it. So, well, that's hilarious. So I am from Freeport Bahamas. That's a huge part of where, like who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when I think about fundamentally, where did my suchness come from? I am the daughter of Doris Jean Harris Sears, who is a woman from Detroit, Michigan, who went to the Bahamas on vacation and met my father and subsequently got married and had me. And I wish that the story ended better than it sounds. It sounds like this epic love story, but it, it really didn't do that. So when you ask me to kind of ponder my beginnings and who I am. I I would have to start with my mother being a black woman from Detroit, Michigan, going to the Bahamas in the 60s. And she probably sought the Bahamas in so many ways because, you know, the Bahamas didn't exist in the same apartheid state that the United States of America uh, did. So I often think how how refreshing the Bahamas must have felt to her soul Mm -hmm. to land in Grand Bahama and not have black and white water fountains or areas and to be able to live a very self-possessed way and, and navigate through this country and an island with, with a chutzpah, by the way, that she always had. I think that what my mother has, I'm convinced at this stage in my life, it's this thing that you either are born with or you don't. And that is, my mother is, she's an orphan. She is a, a child whose mother died when she was one, whose father died when she was five or six. 
why does that have anything to do with me? I think it has a lot to do with me because I think it has to do with how my mother raised me, where she sought to, to create me. Um, and so when I think about that, I was like, yes, of course. My I think mother it has so much to do with you. I mean, I love that you're sharing this because yeah. I mean, we carry we carry the trauma in our bodies through generations. We and do. our ancestors have especially our mothers have so very yeah. much. So even you sharing that, I'm like, I want to know more about your mom's story, like who raised her then when she was an orphan. Yeah. I mean, it has everything to do with you. So I appreciate yeah. you sharing that yeah. part. So continue. I interrupted, but um, no, I you did not. No, she was raised by the way she was raised by her aunts. There were okay. four children who were left behind and mm. nobody could feed all four children. So two went with Aunt Louise and Uncle um, and uh, Aunt Hattaby. And the other two, my aunt, Auntie Barbara, my uncle, um, uh, Uncle WT. I live in a state and city, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and there's this main thoroughfare called WT Harris. And my uncle's name was William Thomas Harris, and we called him WT. Okay. So I often thought that was so interesting. But yeah. so to how my mother was raised, she was raised in an environment that should have made her feel dejected and like she always had something to mm-hmm. prove. And getting back to what I mean by, I think this thing that I'm talking about, you are either born with or you. You can't, I don't know if you could ever have it. And I, I'm a very hopeful person. So I know that may sound very absolutish, but um, she, in an environment that should have broken her heart or made her feel like she was always behind the eight ball in a country that told her she wasn't worth shit. I'm sorry, that she wasn't worth anything. She, she always believed she was, she always believed she was. She never felt like an orphan. She never interfaced with the world like an orphan. She never. And a black woman too. I mean, dealing with that, a black girl. All of that. All of that. She had like all of the makings of a broken soul. And she was everything but. So that this brilliant soul goes to the Bahamas, meets my father. He's her taxi cab driver. Oh, goodness. So is he native to the Bahamas? Yeah, my father's yeah. from the Bahamas. My okay, father is okay. Bahamian. My father okay. is from the Bahamas. She meets him there. He's her taxi cab. My father's from Exuma, Bahamas. Okay. As far back as enslavement in England, my father, my family on my father's side is from Exuma and Long Island, Bahamas. That's where my people wow. hail from. Wow. I and love the ex- I've been to the Exumas. It's beautiful there, but that's where his- my people the- are. It's yes. beautiful. But the history. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So your father was there from the beginning with yeah. his family. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think I still keep my, my former surname is now my middle name Sears is because okay. I know the Sears people. I know where the Sears are okay. from. I know where the bows are from, you know, I, so that I've thought a lot about this unbeknownst to me that you would ever ask me this question, but as of late, the question of why am I who I am? And I would say it's because I am my mother's daughter. I am Doris's daughter. And she is, she, she was really intentional about having me in the Bahamas, like, you know, in this world and turns out, you know, where I was born, actually, I wasn't born in the Bahamas. My mother went back to the States when she was like six months, what, however, they used to have a cutoff period probably yeah, still yeah, do, yeah. when you could fly and then a cutoff period yeah. after you had the child, when you could come back. So whatever that period was, my mother went to Alabama where her eldest sister lived and was, this all has something to do with who I am. I promise. And, um, my aunt was a nurse okay. and where was she a nurse in Selma, Alabama, this girl who seeks justice with every bone in her body from the Bahamas born in Selma, Alabama girl. That just gave me chills all over. I had no idea that was part of your story. That's huge. it is. And it is. And, and, and again, it goes back to me being Doris's daughter. Doris went to Selma mm. to have me. And after she, I was secured. She flew back to the Bahamas and the Bahamas reared me. And I, to be honest, I didn't know I wasn't born into the Bahamas in the Bahamas until I got older. You know, um, why would have I known, you, right, you know, because right. I know nothing about Selma, but I, I oftentimes think God, how that had something to do with who I am. It's in me. The desire for, for sure. justice and truth is in me. And it has always been. My mom tells a story when I was a little girl. And my mother and father weren't, you know, my father's a lapsed Anglican. My mother was like a, a lapsed, like Presbyterian. And, and um, so I had experienced church probably a little bit through the Anglican experience most. 
Mm-hmm. And then my mom and dad in their lapsness and their religion, there was a Baptist church across the street from our house. I remember my mother and father like walking us across the street so we could go and them going back home. Like, girl, they didn't even go to church. <laughs> Just, you know, you feel like you should do that as your parent. So, yeah. so your faith journey, you were, would you, would you say you were raised in the church or just like on Sundays to walk across the street and go kind of, no, I wouldn't say I was raised in the church at all because I would say, I just remember going to the Sunday school once in a while and having fun. I, um, I think they talked probably about Jesus and Joseph and the coat of many color, but like, listen, yeah, I, I feel like I look like the former president with the felt thing being like, who is that? And I'm not sure. Like, it was bad. Um, but, you know, like it was just really oh, r- rudimentary. And uh-huh. um, I but my my aunt, my mother's sister, not the one who she, who helped deliver me, but my mother's other sister who was living, who she was raised with when the two were split, right? When the four okay. were split. She had a coming, she must have had a reckoning with Jesus. So when I went to America, my first memory of coming to America was somewhere around the age of seven. Okay. And my mom, my aunt, it, it, she, when she had her reckoning with Jesus, it was like blood bought, born again, Holy Spirit filled, all of it. And I was like, what is this? What uh-huh. is uh-huh. this Jesus? And they attended a church that my uncle would become the pastor of called oh. All Nation, Full Gospel, Pentecostal Church. I had Ooh. no idea what these words were. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's like, you got to write that down, come back to it, memorize it close yes. your eyes. Did I memorize the name? Right. Yes. It's that kind of name. Yes. And I was just talking about this experience yesterday with a person who I was interviewing Cole Arthur Riley. Yes. And that was my first experience with the black church girl. And mm. it was miraculous to me. Mm-hmm. I did not know you could feel that. And I saw the mm. people undulating at first. It scared me and speaking in tongues and, and mm-hmm. running around the room and fainting and all this stuff in the fans girl uh-huh. and the altar calls. It was a production. And yeah. I was like, wow. This is phenomenal. <laughs> Similar experience because my mom occasionally took us to like a Sunday school, but my right. grandma is the one that went to the, I shouldn't say crazy. I don't want to offend her. She's still alive. No. But yes, the, That's just exactly what you're describing, but it was white people and it was, whoa, whoa. like my little what? eyes were open to what is this? So you're seeing that though in the black church, which is so powerful for you as a young black girl to see this. Yeah. So I just remember being like, I think I didn't know you could feel something so strongly. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't know that. I didn't know that you could feel something so strongly and emote it Mm. because that's what they were doing. It doesn't matter where you land spiritually, whether you believe in God or whether you believe that was true. Let me tell you what was true. They felt something Mm. and they emoted what they felt. And that the reason why it feels crazy is because it is uncontrollable. What someone else feels and what they emote from that space, you can't control that. And you know it. The moment you see it, you know it. Mm-hmm. And and it's it is uh, otherworldly. Right. And so I just remember being so blown away by it. And but also the practical the the older version of me is able to see the great tremendous value of it and and mm-hmm. the brilliance of it and what i was learning and dancing within my soul and that was the first time that i remember being like i want to know jesus mm-hmm. i i want i i guess what i've been doing like i guess i don't know jesus i want to know Je- yeah. i want this But the older version of me, the 46-year-old version of me says, man, I was learning stuff in my cells 
in my DNA, in my makeup that would have a lot to do with where I come from and where I was going. But at the mm-hmm. time, I wasn't aware of that. At the time, I just remember being hungry, being like, Lord, well, Jesus, since it is altar call, I was just wondering if we could just get out a little soon, if Sister Martha over there could just pipe that down. And if there's any way, Jesus, you could see it in your heart. Let the church say amen so we can go home. I would appreciate that. If, that, if, if there's a valid prayer, <laughs> that's, that's right. my prayer that I am ushering. So you were in the States with that, right? Oh, yes, said- absolutely. Yeah, I was yeah. in Holland, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did you move back here? Because that's what I want to talk. Your childhood, I think there's a lot to it. And I don't want to skip too far ahead because I know I've been reading some of your childhood memories and you share seven. And I want to go back to to that. So take me back to that childhood because you, of course, adore your parents and your mother, but your childhood doesn't seem like it was just great because you say (laughs) like, um, I was a slut. I was a druggie. These are your words. So I'm not a criminal. Go back a little bit to your childhood. And how long did you live in the Bahamas? So I feel like I've, I always lived there until I got out of high school and then went okay. to college. But the truth is I started going to boarding school at the age of 10. So that's why I sound like oh, an American okay. is and to the point of some of the things that you're seeing in my childhood. And why was I there that summer? And why did that summer turn yes. into me going to school there? My mother and father's relationship was falling apart. As an adult okay. now, I realize okay. that her marriage was a sham. It was breaking apart. My, you know, my father is for real Bahamian, like old school, like mm-hmm. you cheat on your wife is just a normal. It is, mm-hmm. it is socially accepted and expected that men mm-hmm. cheat on their wives and not just cheat on their wives. They take, they have other children and we even have words mm-hmm. for it. We call them. That's the, that's his sweetheart. That's what we call the yeah. other woman, a sweetheart. And then we say that's his outside children. Those are his outside. Like they know there are children that will exist outside of the confinements of marriage. And I had already started realizing as a little kid, this will not be me. Mm -hmm. I think of a story where Oprah talks about her grandmother teaching her how to wash clothes out in the field and say, okay, so now you got to dunk them down. You got to wash it real good. And I guess her first name is really Gail. Gail, you find yourself some good white people and this is how you're going to have to take Mm -hmm. care of them. And in her little four-year-old soul, she remembers going, not me. I will not have to do that. And that's how I felt. I remember seeing already understanding who my father was at the age of seven. It was very clear to me that he was not someone who could take care of me, that he was not honorable. I call it the time that Superman died. Superman mm-hmm. died around the age of seven for me. You know, you think that your, 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 your father is like the strongest, baddest joker right. on the planet and nobody right. can touch him. And and the most honorable, the most everything. If there's anybody who is bigger and badder and stronger, it's your father. Yeah. That's who it is. Yeah. Yeah. But that fell apart. Six, seven, I knew I was like, oh, no, mm-hmm. this brother, he can't take care of me. He can't take care of himself. He's not honorable. I, I don't feel protected or safe when I'm with him, mm-hmm. not because he ever did anything physically to me. Um, I want to be clear. My father never. He never touched me inappropriately. That wasn't the way he um, mistreated me. He mistreated me in his inability to know how to be close to foster um, intimacy with his own family or children. So I went away to boarding school and it started with that first year. I wasn't at boarding school yet, but I was in seven, I was seven years old. I was in third grade and I went to school subsequently in Holland, Michigan for that year. As my mom was trying to breathe, she sent her yeah. two children there and her sisters as the adult in me, I recognize this. The adult yeah. in me says her two sisters were like, Doris, we got you. Send the girls here. Yeah. And as good sisters but as a child, do. God, did you feel such rejection? Like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> what did you feel with that? Abandonment? I don't know. That's a, Yeah. That's a you lot. know, I, I didn't. You know what I remember most feeling? I just remember most feeling like I wished my family looked and felt like everybody else's. Mm -hmm. Like I was just such a, I was just wrong. Like everything about my life was wrong and everything about everybody else's life was right. I don't know if that makes sense. That's what I remember feeling. Yeah. I don't remember feeling abandoned because even with all of that, I knew my mother loved me. Yeah. I knew my father loved me. Um, I would just grow to know that his love was fractured and broken at best. 
and I still needed more and I deserved more, but he truly gave me all that he had, you know? So I, when I went on to boarding school after that, that first year in, in Holland, Michigan, that's where I was first called nigger. And that's when I first learned, I didn't know what the word meant. And I didn't know that I was black. And I know that's funny to people because it's like, duh, you are black. Look at you. It wasn't that I didn't know I looked like this. I was very well aware that I looked, I was brown. Yeah. But I did not know that there was a story that you had about this that had shit to do with me. Wow. Because in I the Bahamas, everybody had darker skin. Listen, yes. 85, 87% of the people look like me. So okay. as white people don't have a race in America, Black people don't have a race in the Bahamas. No one's going that black person. It would probably, to be honest, it'd probably be more like the Kunky Joe fella, which is a white Bahamans, a term that we use for white Bahamans, and it's not a derogatory term. Or possibly the next place where we are in the Bahamas is national. Like, you know, the Jamaican fella, man, that Trinidadian or... So I did not know that this was anything. First of all, I didn't know that this was anything that was undesirable because I was Mm. considered a pretty little brown girl in the, like people thought I was lovely. And, and that's when I learned in seven, when I was seven years old in third grade, that I was ugly, that I was fat, that I had a big butt, that I was the undesirable. Yeah. When you, when we talked, I mean, I still remember that was so powerful when you said that to me that you thought you were beautiful until you came to America. And and that still, and that just hits me because as we spoke, a white woman that deals with beauty and image and all that, but then to feel no feeling like you are beautiful, like you have that and it's shattered and taken from you because you come into this country that Mm -hmm. puts whiteness above all else. And what that did to your little seven-year-old heart and image like it's oh it's so it's a simple statement but I feel it's so powerful because it is just replica it's It's just an example of what goes on I think the rest of my life has been spent trying to renegotiate and and relearn the essence of my brilliance beauty and ability that was really broken when I was seven years old, I, I see so many things that I did as a direct output of trying to prove that that was wrong, that what they told me was wrong. I did not know that that would be the year that I would start to try to believe something different than it was telling me mm-hmm. that I go back to that. I think like 45 year old Shay is like, yeah, no, that's what they told me when I was seven. No, I'm coming back. Like, I, I think that that mm-hmm. was the thing that I have moved mm-hmm. from and pushed off of my entire life when I was in law school and I felt like I was dumb. And, and I remember going to my counselor, his name was Thomas Brunk. And I didn't know that I must've been saying this. I must've been saying in so many words that I was dumb, that I, I didn't deserve to be at this top 20 law mm-hmm. school that I, everybody else did, but I don't recall saying those words, but I must have said something that he goes, oh, he stopped me one day and he said, Shay, what you think is that they're doing you a favor Mm -hmm. to let you hear and that somehow everybody else deserves to be here and you slip through like you're the imposter. Before Mm -hmm. we heard the word imposter syndrome, he was talking to me. He goes, you feel like you're Mm -hmm. an imposter. And I just Mm -hmm. want you to know these people are not trying to be nice to you. They let you in here because you deserve to be here like every other brain up in this space. You know, when you want to believe you are enough, you desperately want to believe it, but you don't. I think I spent the bulk of my life in that spot. So that's why I laughed when you said I come off like the most confident. I'm like, I feel like I spent the bulk of my life in the spot that I know I should believe that I'm brilliant, that I'm beautiful. Mm-hmm. I should believe in my own self-efficacy, my ability to do, but I don't. And I'm trying to get it back, Jesus. I'm trying to get it back. So you work on it. It does, I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. White supremacy tried to strip that away from you, your blackness, your greatness, and you are working to show, you no, know, this is me and this is fully me and I'm mm-hmm. great. So you do exuberate that, but it's not just 
easy peasy. Like you have to work at it. And that's why it's like, I was shocked. I was going through your childhood memories. And one week you said, I remember what it feels like to know, not think that I am a loser, worth nothing, going nowhere and dumb to boot. And I thought, no way, that is not her. Not her. I did. I remember feeling that in law school. And that's a picture of the front of my law school that I just visited in St. Louis. I remember uh-huh. knowing that. Absolutely. 100%. If you had stayed in the Bahamas, do you think that you would have had that feeling or do you really just directly correlate it with being, being here and your blackness just being so looked down upon and not the acceptable normalness? You know, I've come up with my theory. I, I've, cause I've thought a lot about this over the years and this goes back to me being Doris's daughter. Mm-hmm. Boarding school was critical for me. It was it was actually wonderful for me. Um, it was a great time for me to kind of come into my own, be exposed to so many things around the world that I, I think I would be a different person had I not attended boarding schools. I went to boarding school in the Northeast, in Lake Plas, New York, in Pittsville, Massachusetts. I went to boarding school in Rome, Italy. I went to boarding school with oh. largely white, wealthy people. And by okay. the way, my mother was making a ton of money in the Bahamas. She, you know, she was doing her thing. She was, she was doing her thing. So I oftentimes think, well, if I didn't come to America ever, I think I would be the worse off for it, for many of the things that I'm talking about. However, it's the timing that I came to America. You know, if I had only stayed in the Bahamas, I feel like there would have been a limitation to how I saw the world just just because of where I was raised and what was going on and and not because the Bahamas is bad, but just because I think there's value in being exposed to people and things and thoughts that are so different than you that challenge you. And I don't know if I would have had those same challenges. So I don't want to wax on and act like the Bahamas is perfect and America is not. Right, That's right, not right. the point. But but this is what I've learned. This is my theory. I think it's imperative that you do not let children be around people or environments that don't think that they are amazing mm. before they can know they're amazing. So what I let me repeat. That's that. another quote. That is another shade quote that I'm going to put in my book. Yes. Well, it's or my it's, notebook. It, I'm not yeah, writing no, a book on you. Girl, my notebook. Girl, girl. <laughs> It is the timing, meaning when a child's spirit is so small and fragile and they don't realize how brilliant and beautiful they are yet, they should only be around people who think that they are brilliant and beautiful. It's not that they won't ever be challenged in their greatness in their life. Oh, come on. Life will bring it on. So bring it on. Right. But it shouldn't come before you know you're enough. You should know you're enough before I allow you to be around people who don't regard you as enough. But when you are trying to formulate who you are and your value in this world and you're surrounded by people who are telling you you ain't worth shit, it's hard to walk away with change in your pocket. Can you even imagine this world? I mean, I know we both have daughters, but it's like you think of these black and brown bodies, the LGBTQ youth, like all of these that are, I mean, that's why the church not accepting them is huge or the church saying things that their centers are going to help, but just in our classrooms and that, I just can't even fathom this world if that happened. It's, it's horrible. It really is. And so that's where I think I'm at on this. I, mm-hmm. I think it would have been more ideal for me to have come to the United States of America when I was a little bit more formed up in my Mm self-worth. Yeah, for sure. You were thrown into this at a very fragile state. I mean, a white girl that looks like perfect and acts perfect would have had a hard time with that. So your layers of being brown, being a bigger butt, whatever, all of those things that you were criticized for. So do you think that's why you you acted out? Like with, I don't want to say acted out. I mean, it's being a kid too, but- You had a lot of things getting, you were searching for and doing. Yeah. So I think, so here I am at boarding school. So now I'm at prep school. I went to junior boarding school from fifth to eighth grade. And then you go on to prep school from ninth to Mm -hmm. 12th. Right. So now I'm a freshman in high school. I'm in Miss Hall's boarding school in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And it is these rich white girls. Nobody does more drugs and more sex than rich white kids. I am not kidding you. I oftentimes in Christian schools, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) I I didn't know. I'm going to be honest. I did not know that doing drugs was an option. 
Like, I didn't know that I could do that. I didn't know mm-hmm. that having sex before marriage really was something that I probably should do. I, I, I did. I, uh-huh. I kind of was already like, I think I, I think I'm supposed to, uh, you know, because uh-huh. purity culture uh-huh. had already started kind of getting in there because my mom became a born again uh-huh. Christian when I was 11. Oh, that's Whoa. another big part of your story then. Yes. Okay, goodness. Prime so age where, for that to happen. Yeah. Right. So that's when all the Christian, that's when I would say, I don't think I was raised in the church, but I, I, I had my collision with the church around 11 or 12. Like when my mom became a Christian, yeah. I was just like, yeah. oh, Lord, Jesus. <laughs> um, so I didn't. I didn't do it. Everybody knew I was like the cool nerd. I was gregarious, outgoing. And that's mm-hmm. because I had already learned that I needed to use my personality and my intelligence mm-hmm. because I knew that I was ugly and not enough. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to obfuscate. And how mm-hmm. I obfuscated is I was like, look here, I got this razzle dazzle personality. And I was mm-hmm. a straight A student and I worked hard and I, you know, I, I I made sure that I was on the honor roll or dean's list every semester. Mm-hmm. Like because I look back on it. I was always trying to be enough. I was always trying to prove that I was enough. And and oftentimes in my trying to prove that I was enough, I was always the flipping best. And I still didn't realize mm-hmm. it, you know? So that's what lets mm-hmm. me know. It has nothing to do with placement. It has to do with your perception, your perspective, uh-huh. because mm-hmm. you could have been the number one, but if you don't feel like you are enough, you it's still even the number oneness yeah. won't be enough. That's right. You'll question it. Like you were at the, with your counselor at law yes. school, like I shouldn't yeah. even be here. Right. Yeah. They told I, you, I, they, they told you, scolded me and they were like, you know, let her in, let her in. Like, right. now it's I'm, not I'm you. Grown. It can't possibly be you. You're not great enough. You're not enough. I, Oh, those voices say, I just, but that is the power. Like I'm 45, you're 46. Like that is the power of starting to really look at these, this life and our feelings and thoughts with wiser, older eyes and feeling like, okay, this was it. And I'm really, yeah. So there's power in that. And I see it coming out of you and I just, I love it. And you are such an encouragement to me too. That feels like I had a similar path of things, but an easier path. Cause I was white. So that's why I'm like, God, hers was so like so much harder. I have to yeah. know this changes a little bit jumping ahead. So looking at your bio, you went to ORU. I had no idea. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, you know, so, I lived the last seven years in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I'm no, like, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the, the whole Bible bell is, uh-huh. Crazy, so I'm like, crazy. wait, what? She, she was in, she was there. How yes. did you end up there? And I want to hear what that did to you because you mm. talk about the white Christian American church and I'm like, oh, yeah. she experienced it. She yeah, definitely yeah. did. So why did you yeah. go there and what did that do to you? Yes. So <laughs> how many years did that set you back in therapy? Girl, still in it, still in it. No, um, I, I, so my life is so bizarre. I know I, um, I, I went to after two years at Miss Hall's boarding school, ninth and 10th grade, 11th grade. I went to La Squadra de Marymount. It's in Rome, Italy. Um, and then for my senior year, my mom to her I mean, she was begging me not to. She was like, you're going back to Italy. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to live here in the Bahamas. It dawned on me that if I didn't come home for my senior year of high school, it, it would be like I hadn't been home since yeah. fifth grade. And I, you know, I left in the end of fourth grade. And I was just like, no, I want to come home for my senior year. So for my senior year, I graduated from Grand Bahama Catholic High School. But after I graduated mm-hmm. from Grand Bahama Catholic High School, I went for two years to University of Southern Europe. It's in Monaco. And it has now changed its name and I can't remember the new name of it, but um, living in Monaco is its own experience. It is at the time, it's certainly, I've never been to Dubai or Qatar or many of these places that have stupid money, but I had never seen wealth in one place so densely levied. So ridiculous. It was like, what? in the world. So Mm -hmm. this, I graduated from high school in 1991. I graduated when I was 16. So sometimes that throws people. So I arrive in Monaco and there are video cameras on every street corner. It is the most safe place you could imagine. There is not going to be a physical crime. I promise you that. 
somebody might try to cheat you of some money in the bank, but nobody is trying to physically hurt you or anything like you could just walk down the street. And the reason why I had to talk, talk about the level of wealth is because I think there's so many things tied up to being wealthy um, with if, if you don't know that you are enough, you'll use whatever it is out there to try to prove that. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people are in that predicament. So I think it's unfortunate when you get money too soon before you realize, hey, baby girl, mm -hmm. you're enough because you will. It, it's insatiable. It will be it will lend to an insatiable place a predicament that you will find yourself in. There's nothing that will quench it because it's more and more. So I lived in a nation mm -hmm. that was more on top of more on top of more. And frankly, it's exhausting and sad. Mm -hmm. It was like living in the middle of, uh, I always used to say at the time, it was like living in the middle of a soap opera. I didn't even watch soap operas, but I, at the time there was a soap opera called the bold and the beautiful. I imagined whatever was on this soap opera, that's what I lived in Monaco. Mm -hmm. So for two years of just being surrounded by enormous wealth and also enormous depravity, like, mm. and, and depression and, and desperation. And they loved me. They loved Shay. I had all the wealthy friends were like, let's, I, I tell this story and I'm not, I'm telling you why they loved me. They didn't love me because Shay was so amazing. They loved me because what I was and have always been is I was true. Mm -hmm. I just was true. And I would let you be whoever you were mm -hmm. in front of me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't perfect. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I never felt an inclination for you to be anything other than you mm -hmm. were. And apparently that brings a lot of love and comfort to people's hearts. So people used to yeah. seek me out. So I was, that's how I learned how to drive a stick shift perfectly. I can drive on a hill. I can park at a 45 degree incline. I got you because I was always the um, designated driver. This is going back to my sluttiness. I'm going to tell you how it came out or that because I'm not acting out here. I'm not, I'm not even responding. I'm like, I am as good as they gets. I'm like, I always make the right choice. I do not make the mm -hmm. wrong decision. I remember one night, two of my friends come to get me. I remember Paul and Sophie. She was, she was Swedish and he was French. And he, they were like, come on, Shay, come out. We're coming to get you. And they stopped by my um, hotel, my apartment, excuse me, and got me. And I was like, I'm not good. I'm not coming out. I'm not coming out. Please, please, please. Mm -hmm. And they, he was driving this, um, this goes back to my mother. He was driving this Porsche, a convertible Porsche that just had room enough for like one, per, like two people in the back, but you're like tight. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever been to Monaco, but the roads are not. curvy and they're straight up like 20 foot, just solid rock wall. And you're drunk and you want to drink and you want me. No, I'm not mm. riding in this car with you. And that goes back to Doris's daughter. My mom, no matter what she did, she always made me feel like my life meant something, that I was mm. on this planet for a purpose. So mm. I had to be a good steward of this life. So anything that seemed to challenge that, to seem to choke that life out of me, I wouldn't do it. So when all of my white girlfriends were doing drugs and having sex, everybody knew she's a cool nerd. She's fun but she's not screwing anybody and she's not putting anything up her nose or taking no shrooms or doing any LSD. No, thank you. So just keep it moving around Shay. Uh -huh. So they come to get me and they're like, please Shay. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, no. He's like, hold on. I was like, no, this car, please. Y'all, you get hit into a wall. You can die. Uh -huh. No, uh -huh. thank you. He's like, okay, we'll be right back. Girl, 30 minutes later, they pull up in this convertible four door Rolls Royce grandpa car. He's like, we can't go fast in this. Will you just come with us? And so this is an example of, I tell this story because why would they care that I spend time with them? Why would they want me? I think in the middle of the silliness that they were living in the desperateness of money, more money, more this, more that, because you really want the money to try to make you, you think yeah, that it's going to yeah. make you feel important. 
It's going right. to make you feel enough. And then you get it and you're like, I still feel like a pile right. of bones. Right. So that's why they would go out of their way to get Shay. So living in that for two years, I just think I had had it. I, I was like, I can't do this. This is just sad. If this is as good as life gets, I don't want it. Right. And right. I went back home and I thought, you know what I want? The kind of emo- the kind of experience I wanted to replicate was the experience I had at my first boarding school in Lake Placid, New York. I now knowing what I know now, I was looking for probably the University of Vermont. But all I knew is I said I kept saying I want to go to like corn husk, like down home kind of so funny. school, you know, Christian maybe, and and I just landed on Oral Roberts. I knew nothing about Oral oh Roberts. My and I was like, gosh. And I was like, oh, I bet you this is going to give me that feeling. That is wild to me (laughs) that you went from that to Oral Roberts University. Oh, my gosh. Well, Jen Hatmaker and Sarah Bessie both went to ORU, but their story of getting there is not quite as crazy as yours. So you land there at ORU and what tell me just in a like, I don't know. Tell me where you yeah, what your thoughts, what that did to you, because that is a heavy yeah white yeah. Yeah, yeah. christian environment Ooh. with a lot of standards a lot of expectations purity culture go to chapel i mean i know because my daughter had a couple friends that went there and i'm like Whoo, okay yeah yeah it uh, it gave me initially another thing to try to perfect to be enough and be perfect mm-hmm. um but i think i had this conversation with you and if i didn't forgive me um but it becomes problematic, right? Perfectionism, purity culture, already problematic in and of itself, but it becomes really problematic for the person, the doer of it, the person who's trying to abide by and live it. When you are already starting at a place that's never going to be enough. So like you talked about like being skinny and beautiful and all of that Mm -hmm. um, is what every woman in America in the Western world certainly faces, Mm -hmm. right? But if you're already starting out as white, there's a you might be able to push yourself into that hole. You your your hair is brown, but if you dyed it, it as used most to white be blondish. Do, it looks okay. to be a little blonder. <laughs> I'm letting it go dark the older I get. See, that's <laughs> See, but yes, okay. go on. But you're right. Yeah. Right. But if if your hair is brown and you are white, you still could dye it. And frankly, most white women that I know dye their hair Ooh. just like a lot. Yes. No, nobody's a natural blonde. There's, I, I, I think I've met like two in my life and, um, but you could, you could at least do something mm-hmm. girl. I could mm-hmm. dye my hair blonde tomorrow. I'm still, the problem is I'm still not going to be white. I can put right. in blue contacts. I'm still, so I think that's where I've analyzed this, why I see black women on the Western part of the world, I'm sure other areas, but black women are able to like sit in this space of like, I am the lion, hear me roar room. You didn't ask for me to enter, but I am here Uh and you will bring in my calling and you will, and I will sit at the table though you didn't ask me to. And I'll ask you to pass me the rolls with the side of butter down at the other end. And you see this and you're like, how do they do this? Because they were never going to yeah. be enough. They mm-hmm. were never going to fit into that rubric. They yeah. weren't ever going yeah. to be able to be yeah. a part of that flow chart. The yeah, flow chart was never standard. Yeah, it's it is possible standard. That they're they, never going to achieve. They're already never going to achieve it. So mm-hmm. at a, so somewhere they were, it had, they had to find it not predicated on whether or not you saw it in them. They had to see it in themselves and their Mm. aunties and grandmas and and sisters and friends had to see it in them and call it up because they knew the world was never going to call it up from them. They knew the world was never going to tell them they were enough. So baby girl, we don't wait for our thighs to have a gap to know that we are brilliant and beautiful. Okay, because ah, because yes. it may that ain't never that ain't your story, baby girl. We don't wait for the tan to hit us right at the right angle. You that that is not yours. You are already brown and beautiful, and mm-hmm. it so the, mm-hmm. it it had to come from some other place than society giving it to you. 
So, so the place that I found myself in at ORU is at a certain point, you know, I'm at the, I'm trying to be perfect at a certain point. I, this starts dawning on me. I feel like I have been always late to the game in my blackness. I came into my black full awareness. I'm still coming into it, but I call it my black renaissance when I left ORU and I went to law school. So here I am at a certain point. I'm like, I'm not, this is, I keep hearing y'all talk about, let's go back to our founding fathers and principles. And I'm like, (laughs) but y'all owned me and no one wants. And then Mm. I also already realized that me just saying that was problematic because I felt the pushback. I was like, well, I don't want to do, I mean, yeah. I mean, except for slavery. I mean that, yeah, that was really, no, that wasn't good. But I was like, I know I can't gloss over it. Yeah. And Tulsa is one of the most racialized cities. I mean, we're getting up at the hundredth anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And my oral comm teacher taught me about that. And when she taught me that it was, she was teaching me something that was, that she had to teach me on the DL at Oral Roberts university. It wasn't any, it was sacrilegious. It was like, don't talk about that because white people, anything that makes white people look violent it's, they get they get real upset about that. They same like to Shay, do- it's the same today. My daughter learned about it by a teacher at a small private school on the DL too. Because yes. it's not required to be teaching it in their public schools. It's still not. I mean, no, it, it actually kind of frowned upon. Like, why do you always yes. want to just focus on the negative? And I'm like, there are so many people that grew up there that don't know anything about it. I mean, and now, like, that was the whole por- a big point of my transformation of learning about this and starting to yeah. learn about real history. And so, you're there, you learn about it. I mean, and you're surrounded by white people that are just like, what are, what are you even talking about, Shay? Like, yeah. oh, slavery? Like, that was so long yeah. ago. So that has to do something to you. And- yeah, it, it made me realize, I started realizing then that I, that what this thing was, and I'm not gonna, I'm not saying it to sound rude, but it was not big enough for me. Like I was too, like I was never going to fit it. And I remember being scared because I really did fear hell. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I fear hell terribly, but I don't know how not to have these questions and have these feelings that I have. And at a certain point, I would say during my first year of law school, I couldn't hold off asking the profound questions and exploring it. And I'm telling you, I heard God tell me this and that gave me freedom. It was in 1998, 99, and I'm in St. Louis and I'm just kind of pushing against all of the walls in my mind of things that I had been taught and and I, I didn't believe them necessarily. I didn't want to believe them, but they still were a part of me at this stage. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't, God, if I go to hell because I mm-hmm. can't sit in this box of, um, of belief that is so cold and, and calloused and disinterested in so many, then um, I guess I won't have to go to hell you know, because I can't. And and the, here's the thing, God, like you're the one who really matters and you know, my thoughts, you know what I feel. So I know I feel and think these things all the time, even when I sit in the audience of those who do not know it. So at a certain point, I was just like, I don't want to go to hell per se. Do I still believe there's, I don't know. But what I knew is it felt hell enough to feel as I felt and to pretend that I did it. Oh, that is so powerful, Shay. And I mean, this is emotional still for you because it's what I think, again, this white American church puts us, puts us through. And again, you as a black woman, you can't ever fit there. And you, you pretty much surrendered. You're like, I can't. And it's still emotional for you to say today, where do you feel like your faith is 
today? Like what role does that play? Because I feel like yeah. you've also, you've obviously also been hurt by the quote, the church. And some yeah. people can just turn and be like, screw it. I am done. Yeah. I'm an atheist. And some yeah. people find their way back to the healthiest relationship ever. So I'm really curious yeah. your faith today. So during that time, what I heard God say to me, and I believe it was God, I was crying. And this has to do with where I am. I was crying and just saying exactly what I told you. And I heard, Shay, you're not journeying from me. You're journeying to me, through me, and with me. Keep it going. Mm -hmm. And once I heard that, I didn't give a shit what you thought. Because I knew the king of glory, that who exists Mm -hmm. beyond any kind of framework that I like to give because it makes sense for me, that she, he, it was good with me. Keep asking. Amen. Keep moving. Amen. Keep asking. Mm -hmm. Keep figuring out how to love those people. You keep anything Mm. that's leading you to stretch your love. I promise you it's God. I promise you it ain't the devil. That's what I promise you. That's right. That is so true. Yes. And and I just kept, I just kept feeling stretched and stretched and in my place of love and understanding and And I still was able to modify it or keep it in certain boxes for enough. But I eventually I I couldn't do it. I couldn't even do it enough to to please you. Uh, Eventually, the people who were committed to being in that space, you wouldn't want to be around me. You wouldn't want to you wouldn't even want to be around my energy. And I am all right with that. But it takes a bit to get to be okay with that. Were you always okay with that? Or has that been a process for you? Cause I feel oh, like that's where I'm at. Like, I'm like, I got to get where I'm okay with that. Yeah, no, it is a process. And I, maybe I'm still in flux because there are still relatively new, you know, new fallings away, you know, falling away mm-hmm. of, of relationships that you're like, Oh, that's, you know, I don't, but I guess where it got to, I just asked my cousin this when I was in, Miami. I said to her, you know, when did you get to this place of self-actualization or a, a place of like where you sat in the seat of your soul and power and truly did not care what other people felt and thought and the falling aways of different things? When did you have this How'd you get this self-possession? And, you know, my aunt, her mother passed away and she said, and she died in Germany. My, my aunt died in Germany of cancer. And she said the day my mother died in that hospital room in Germany, I remember thinking, and this is what I'm giving to you. And I take it for myself. She said, I remember thinking my mother has loved me. I know this love. This woman loved me with everything in me. She gave me everything she had to give so I could walk through this planet and stay alive. So when she died, I didn't give up what you thought of me because I had been loved. So where am I in my process? I really am telling you, I know who loves me. I know who carries me. I know who surrounds me. I know that love. I know it. So if you don't give it to me, I am all right with it. I feel like I need to be praising the Lord right now. (laughs) Yes, that can preach. God, I take those words. Thank you for sharing that. That is so so powerful. And so there's so much of your story I want to talk about. This is why you can do your own show like multiple times a week, because you are so full of wisdom and stories. Mm-hmm. You really are. I We got to fast forward now. The Shea Show. I heard you say on Monica's show, that is what you were born to do. And yep. not lost on me that you spent a whole lot of money or somebody did or got scholarships yep. on undergrad, on law school. Good Lord. I, know, I have a daughter that wants to go to law school. I'm like, you know how much that costs? So you're yeah, not, you're right. not, <laughs> so you're not a lawyer. So, yep. but you feel like the Shea show is what you were born to do. And you're on like right. what, two, 200 plus how many episodes? And now I think I'm at 235, 230. And you're lot. one of those, I think 233 through between 233 and 235. And, I, and you're one lot. of those. 
last yeah. fall. And you do it multiple times a week. I don't know I how do. you do it. I mean, I'm approaching almost a hundred. Um, I might be done at a hundred. That's a lot. <laughs> No, don't be done. No. <laughs> so tell me where this idea, this passion, when you decided, like how many years have you been doing it? So I have been reaching for it and trying to do it solidly for 10 years since 2011. Okay. And, you know, and, and feeling like a failure and flailing and not knowing exactly how to make it happen. And, right. And not being able to give people a perfect answer that sounds strong and and sounds like you got your stuff together and you're about to do it and make it, you know, uh, but what I know is I've always wanted and felt inclined to foster meaningful conversations. Mm. Having meaningful conversations is something that I just felt calling me and and pushing the needle towards love and causing us to hear other stories like long before anybody else said stories were valuable this is in my journals like I'm like I just feel like people's stories and and when you would say that in a professional setting they looked at you like you were stupid like, why did you give it? Well, I don't care about your story. Like, we want to know how many of those widgets can you sell and move from that wall to that wall? You know, like, and I'm like, right. but the story, why you would knew, they? You knew in your soul I before, did. It, was, before I, it was a thing. I'm not kidding. And I'm not saying stories. that to, I'm telling you, I knew that. Yeah. I knew yeah. it before any, so for me, these past 10 years, this process of seeing the world recognize the value of stories and recognize that everything, I don't care what it is, is a story, is a thought, is a dream. Every single one. Why does that vodka exist? It's a story. Why does Dwayne Wayne's tequila exist? Yeah. The story behind, I'm telling you, everything yeah. we touch, we, yes. we it comes from a story. Yeah. It comes from yeah. something that means something to us. So I, I knew that. And I knew that using my voice was the powerful tool. Can I tell one quick story? You are, can tell as many stories as you want. It's your time that, cause I'm like, I told her an hour. So if you're good to tell a story, I, so here's I love a quick hearing st- your wisdom. Yeah. This is exactly where my knowing that I was, a, I was supposed to be a talk show host. I know it sounds bizarre, mm-hmm. but so tell me your story of when you knew. So I am 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I am back in Holland, Michigan. And my uncle, he makes us watch the color purple. I think I'm 10, nine or 10. And we watched the color purple. Okay. And he says, Hey, after we finished watching that w- movie, I guess sometime later that summer, he goes, you remember the woman in, um, in the color purple, she's getting her own talk show. And at then it was only Sally, Jesse, Raphael, I believe. And Phil Donahue. Yeah. And I was like, What? Suge mm. Avery is getting her own talk show. Listen, this is where colorism and already I'd heard the message. Mm-hmm. I'd already heard the message that I wasn't enough mm-hmm. and that I might enough in order to even try to be enough. I had to look as white as can be. So of course the lightest skinned one woman in the, sh- right. in, in the story, the one who we perceive as the beautiful one, beautiful Suge Avery, yeah. who Mr. Really loved, right? She had to be the one who's getting her own talk show. I was like, ooh, Suge Avery is getting her own talk show. And, but I don't even know if I must have said that out loud. I just assumed it in my head. And then we're watching it and it was like, and Oprah's getting her own. And I was like, Sophia? Good, good, the last person. Woo! Sophia, (laughs) Sophia, Sophia. When I saw that Sophia, Fia was getting her own talk show, the black, the round, the big, the fat, the ugly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of which I identified as mm-hmm. already at 10. Mm-hmm. When I knew that she was getting her own talk show, it's like she said, and you too, Shay, and you too. Oh, she didn't have to know that. Awesome. She mm-hmm. didn't have to know that, but I'm telling you what I felt. That's truly when, if I'm going to be very, very vulnerable and real with you, that's when I knew this is what I came to do. Now, how do I do this? I have no flipping idea. But that just shows representation. Representation for you, your little 10-year-old 
black self to see yes. another black woman up there owning that show speaking yeah. and not like, the pretty light skin wavy hair none of that right and so did you always just have this in your mind through all these schools and boarding schools and all of this always and, right here yeah. always right here and always right here i just didn't say it because i knew it sounded crazy and i it's like like who am i because right i already knew who am I to think that I could have a talk? Who am I to think that mm. I could be this thing? Who am I? But I have done so many things in my life. I've pursued so many things. I've dreamed. This is the only thing that I've tried to, law school was my way of pragmatically trying to utilize what I thought were my talents and my voice, my presence, my persuasion to be in alignment with that unspoken thing that I felt calling me. And what I've also learned is there's no point in trying to practically live out your destiny. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is no point. There's no point in trying to choose the, make the pragmatic choice to make the impossible destiny that you feel calling you happen. Just choose the destiny. Just let it take you, let it ride you. And I think, I don't think I know when you asked me that question, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I'm like, Lord, I am still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. It is such a joke that we're, we're expected to figure that out in our twenties, our early twenties. We don't even know the possibilities. We don't even know who we are. And I'm, I don't know. And then we got kids right thrown in it. So it's, yeah, I get it. Why you went to law school, why you went through all the steps that seem to be what you should do in this American dream. But now yeah. you feel like you're living out what you're supposed to be doing. So tell me your hopes and dreams for the show. Where do you see it in five years? I mean, it's yeah. only getting bigger. It's only growing and hopes and dreams, real vulnerable, real, real. My hope is that in this calendar year, I make a connection with a major production house or platform like Netflix or Hulu or ABC yes. or NBC. And I start the conversation and contract drawing up of my show being an internationally syndicated talk show around the world. So in five years, the Shea show is as ubiquitous as the Oprah show was. And that's yes, what I hope. Speak it. Speak it. And you are, you are heading there, Shay. I mean, I, I'm a hundred percent for you. And I just, your comp, your confidence and speaking it, you give women like me just such encouragement to figure out what, what our destiny is and just go for it. So I know we have to wrap up here. I keep looking at the time. I'm going to ask you just a couple questions. And I said, I don't prepare them. There are a couple things at the end. I usually ask you asked me this, but you had the three years thing, but I want to know, you can pick any time frame. What would you tell your younger self? I mean, obviously younger, your younger self was striving to figure out that she is enough, but if you yeah. could go back and give her words that she would hold on to that young self, what would you say? I think I would say, I know it's easy to believe every bad thing you've ever been told about mm -hmm. yourself and it will always be easy to believe it, but you are the antithesis to every Thing, those bad things tell you you are mm -hmm. and one day you will know it and one day you will and it doesn't seem like it right now but one day you will so just keep moving forward and the last question because because joy is also resistance so I want to yeah. know what you are doing what's giving you joy right now I love I mean I really do I love interviewing people I mm -hmm. love I love sitting outside um, of my home and watching, I have this st straw umbrella. It looks like uh, a straw umbrella that you would have on a beach. I love watching it blow in the wind. I love sitting under it. I love, I love daydreaming. That's bringing me a lot of joy mm. too. I love daydreaming and thinking about what will be and what will come. Shay, I have just... I know I keep saying it, but I have absolutely loved getting to know you, you better the last, the last week in three conversations. <laughs> and it really, it really is. I don't say this lightly. It is an honor to just get to talk to you and learn from you and watch you and hear your wisdom. So thank you. Thank you for doing this with me today. Thank Tell you. us just where you can be found. I know we said it in the conversation yeah. with Marcy, but if people miss that one, tell them where they can go watch your show, where they can find you, all of that. Yep. 
So my website is the Um, my name is spelled CHA. I know it's a little different. Um, and then you can find me on the gram. Those are the two places where I probably hang out the most. Okay. Yep. We will go there, find you. And you have a show coming up pretty much. Do you do it every Saturday? One day during the week. And typically it's a Tuesday or a Thursday. And then okay. a Saturday I had to, I was doing them in the middle of the pandemic every day. And I was just like, okay, I can't, this is, this is unsustainable Shay. But um, yeah. So okay. about two to three shows a week and they, and then when I'm really good on top of my game, I, I do upload them to YouTube, but okay. I have to be on top of my game for that. But, but yeah. Instagram's the best place to go find it. Usually always on yeah. Saturdays and another day. And you have yeah. some amazing men and women on there and people can learn more about you and at your website too, because you have more parts of your story that we didn't get into with your husband. And that's another, are you okay that we didn't get into that? Oh, so 100. That. No, okay. girl, we didn't skim over that. There was so much. I was, okay. I, I told you things that I didn't think I was going to tell you. Okay. I didn't think about so, it. Yeah, I never know the direction these are going to go. That was on my list because I feel like that is an important part of your story. But people can go on your website and find out more about that part of your story. Shay, Absolutely. I'm going to let you go back to bed. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're awesome. Uh, Thank you. I hope this conversation was an encouragement to your heart and soul like it was to mine. To hear more from Shay and her amazing guests, be sure to check out The Shay Show on Instagram. The links are in this episode's show notes. Also, if you don't follow me on Instagram, I encourage you to do so. There you can find information on a new reading community group that I'm offering this summer, along with my dear friend, Tasha Hunter. Finally, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, can you do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes? I love getting listener feedback and encouragement, and it also helps others find the show more easily. Thanks for listening. 